Hello. Jacob, oh, hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you, but can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Good, good. Okay, shall we dive straight in? Yes, please. This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. times, Haile Selassie must be uh, the most internationally renowned person uh, who has lived in Bath. I think Windrush is an unbelievable disgrace. Uh, I am very uncomfortable with the hostile environment policy. It fails to recognise the fundamental equality of every British citizen. You're listening to Imperial Voice, and this is In Our City. I'm Tossi Onileri. I'm William Heath. Last April, William had his MP, Vera Hobhouse, on the show. Now it's my turn. Our guest today is one of the most powerful people in the country, leader of the House of Commons and Lord President of the Privy Council. It's my local Member of Parliament, the Right Honourable Jacob Rees-Mogg, MP for North East Somerset. Jacob, welcome to Imperial Voice. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for your enormously flattering uh, introduction. I, I'm not sure I'm as powerful as you say, but um, it's kind of you to suggest it. Well, we like to uh, give people a warm welcome. As MP for the area, what are the main concerns people are reaching out to you about right now? Well, just before joining you, I was doing a telephone surgery for constituents. And one of the issues that came up today was antisocial behaviour. And that's always a problem uh, that However well the police try to tackle it, anti-social behavior crops up again and again. And um, whenever it's solved in one place, it seems to arise elsewhere. So I often have issues relating to that. Um, I had another call on an issue relating to the lockdown and to tax payments. And of course, economic issues have been a real problem for people, particularly over the last year and the use of the furlough scheme and the various schemes that there have been to help people, but it's been a very difficult time. So there are a range of of conversations and issues that crop up. And my job as an MP is to be an advocate for my constituents. So when they come to me, I must try and get redress of grievance for them and try and get a problem put right. So given the combined effects of, of COVID and Brexit, what do you think is the outlook for the local economy? Well, I, I had a meeting actually earlier on today with the um, local Chamber of Commerce and a number of business people were on the call. And it's very interesting listening to them. Um, and what they were saying to me was that Brexit had gone smoothly and that the effect on their businesses had been limited. But the effect of COVID had been serious, both in terms of disruption to trade, uh, because 
simple things like lorry drivers have been ill and or have been awaiting test results, have been isolating, and therefore the supply of transport hasn't been as high as it normally is. So, And um, uh, passenger flights, we often forget that passenger flights have a lot of cargo in their bellies. But if you don't have the passenger flight, you don't have the cargo being taken. And that's both increased the cost of air freight and reduced its its quantity. So those issues related to COVID have been problematic. But what you've also seen is considerable savings by individuals who haven't had to pay for their commute to work and so on. So have built up reserves, paid off debt. And demand seems to be underlying everything pretty strong. You saw that in August when the economy opened up and rebounded strongly. And um, Andrew Haldane, the chief economist of the Bank of England, has said that he views the UK economy as a coiled spring. And I'm a great admirer of his. I think he's a very able economist, well worth listening to. Uh, and, and I think his description is has every chance of being accurate. I, mean, I saw reference to 900,000 small businesses possibly going to the wall. Do you, do you think locally we're going to have a wave of failed businesses and unemployed staff and freelancers who can't find work? Is, is, is that a likelihood? And, and how would we sort of ease their pain and suffering? I think it's been very difficult for people. It's been very difficult for freelancers uh, and for sole director businesses. And um, uh, that is one of the problems that has arisen because of, of, of COVID. I think what is going to happen next is that if there is a bounce back in demand, then you will see the demand for their services return. But I am afraid that unemployment will rise for some time as the furlough scheme, which has been hugely supportive of employment and not just in this constituency, but across the country, um, it will go on as long as there's the virus. It's set to go on until the end of March. As we open up, some companies may find that demand patterns have changed. And that's going to be a real issue. And will people, for example, be going back to high streets when we reopen? Or have people got so used to internet purchasing that they have decided that another way of doing things is better? And so uh, there may be structural changes to the economy that affect employment patterns. But if the economy bounces back in the way Haldane has predicted, then job opportunities will arise that will help ease any temporary increase in unemployment. One of the uh, your government slogans is to build back better. What are the special, specific opportunities to build back better in North East Somerset? Um, well, it, I mean, it is partly infrastructure questions, and this is connectivity, and I don't just mean uh, roads and the capacity of our roads. Um, there's an interesting debate to be had over the Bath bypass, which I'm very strongly in favour of. I think it would be a huge advantage both to Bath and to the surrounding areas, as long as it's beautiful and fits in with a World Heritage City. Uh, but also um, issues of rural broadband and mobile reception. Um, I'm at home in West Hartree, and the broadband is, is very good, but the mobile reception is extremely fitful, as you discovered as we tried setting up this call, when um, even when we would go to the top of the house, uh, it waxes and wanes. 
Can we go to a, a, the first track you chose? And Jacob, I must say, you've chosen a wonderful selection of, of music. I think they are imperial tracks fitting for Imperial Voice Radio. We're going to play Vivaldi's Gloria in D. You mentioned Bath's world heritage status and our formal listing uh, sites, quote, the list of famous and influential people who visited the resort. Now, at Fairfield House and at Imperial Voice Radio, we contend that His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I is head and shoulders the most globally famous and the most globally influential person ever to have lived in our part of the world. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, I think certainly in modern times that is true. Um, I mean, I could argue about Alfred the Great, but that's going back quite a long way. But valid, um, valid. But but in modern times, Haile Selassie must be uh, the most internationally renowned person uh, who has lived in Bath. Um, and what you don't know, because I haven't told you, is that when he was living in Bath uh, before the Second World War, um, my father met his daughters, um, and I seem to remember him telling me that they had swimming lessons together, of all things. Uh, and so there is even a, a remote personal connection. That's a very good personal connection. I, I don't suppose there are any photographs, are there? No, and um, I was um, having a look just before we started in my father's memoirs to see if he included it, and, and he didn't. So I um, can't give you any more details, but I remember him talking uh, 
about it and, uh, you know, Haile Selassie and his family were um, in, internationally renowned celebrities when they were in Bath. And um, my father as a child, as I say, I remember meeting his daughters. Do you think those swimming lessons were in the Cleveland pools or in the River Avon or where? I imagine uh, in a pool rather than in the Avon. As you well know, his, his exile arose because of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. And he made that famous 1936 speech to the League of Nations on his way before he came to London. And it does seem that the British government didn't really want to publicly embrace the emperor. I mean, they were ambivalent about condemning Mussolini and they didn't really want to upset Hitler. Baldwin is famously said to have hidden under a table in the tea room of the commons to avoid meeting him. If you'd been leader of the house at that point, how do you think you'd have played that? It's a very interesting question. And we know now the failures of policy in the 1930s mm. and that appeasement was one of them. Um, and the willingness to overlook Mussolini's uh, shocking breach of international law, um, dictatorial behavior uh, and moral outrages was part of the era of appeasement. And we now know what that led to. And I think we should bear that in mind in how we react internationally today. I think there are always lessons from the past. So I hope as leader of the House, I would have um, welcomed him uh, as an important political figure who deserved support. And of course, the failure of the League of Nations to um, back uh, Haile Selassie to defend Ethiopia is really the death knell of the League of Nations. So his Imperial Majesty's most famous speech was to the UN in 1961 about race and equality. Uh, are you familiar with it? Uh, well, you kindly sent me a copy and I, I, I read it. it it's um, interestingly tactful about America. It refers to um, JFK trying to get rid of the last vestiges of racial inequality in the United States, which if you consider that this is before Lyndon B. Johnson's presidency, which made the great advances uh, in removing segregation and so on in the US, um, I think his tact was... Um, notable. But his speech is very important because of the point, among others, that you would hope that people would notice the colour of skin as much as they notice the colour of eyes. And I think that is something that the world ought to aim for. So from what you've said, did you find it inspiring? It, it, it is an inspirational speech. It's also a remarkable speech in its history for the point that he makes that many heads of state addressed the United Nations, but he was the only one both to have addressed uh, the League of Nations and the United Nations. And it gives an historic context to his speech um, uh, and, and a political power to it because he was speaking from what he had seen. So he's very prescriptive in a sense in this speech. Does that prescription ring true for all of us today? Um, I mean, I, I think there are difficulties with what he prescribes, um, that it, there's an element of the speech that is um, very idealistic as to what you could achieve in terms of uh, disarmament and indeed in terms of global government. Uh, I'm not sure that that is something that is going to work out in practice, but I think the valuing of every individual is so fundamentally important is a, a thread that runs through the politics of the free world. 
But I think that domestic democracy is the greater protector of freedom than trying to impose things on an international level. In, in terms of that uh, domestic policy, do you think that the philosophy of racism that his imperial majesty speaks of has been discredited and abandoned in the world at large and specifically within the UK? I think specifically within the UK, yes. I, I think this country um, has recognised the fundamental wrongness of racism. And we are a country that um, sees the value of every individual. I think we are close to the position of eye colour and skin colour being uh, of equal relevance. And that's certainly an important policy objective. Um, I, I think this idea of the fundamental equality of all, whether they are of one race or another, whether they're able-bodied or disabled, is, is tremendously important to at least my understanding of what this country stands for. Um, I mean, it's encapsulated in the phrase, be you ever so high, the law is above you, that we're all equal above the, under the law, we're all equal in our fundamental essence uh, before the state and, of course, before God. Do you think that institutional racism then is, is done? It, it doesn't really exist. And secondly, what is your stance on international morality question? I think there are bad people. Um, and I think that, that there are um, people who... Um, well, if there weren't bad people, we wouldn't have anybody in prison. There are, there are bad, bad people in society who try and persuade people uh, to um, uh, do things that are, are clearly wrong. And, and sometimes they are in, in groups. And so you, you, you sometimes see occasions where institutions have a group within them that do, um, do things that are straightforwardly wrong. And I don't think one should pretend that doesn't happen. But I don't think that is the nature of the of the state. Um, and and so I, I think recognizing that the state as a whole is colorblind does not deny that there may be individuals within it and indeed individuals who form groups together uh, that that um, uh, do have views and act upon those views uh, that are simply wrong. Do you think there's an issue of racism in northeast Somerset? Um, I, I, I think it, it, that there are there are some constituents who write to me with views that are appalling, absolutely shocking, mm. and so um, there are certainly some people who uh, ha have. Um, racist views um, and this is something that one hopes that people will realize are views that are simply wrong and not a benefit either to them or to society at large so that there are certainly people with racist views in northeast Somerset and as I say some of them write to me some of them with their names some of them without their names and is there any strategy or tactic to, to, to turn their hearts and minds that works? Well, I, I, I think that um, politicians need to 
as far as they can lead by example. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you get letters from victims of racism? Have you, have you ever sort of sat down in a room with, with obviously you don't have many uh, black or minority ethnic constituents. It's a very predominantly white area. But but have you ever had a chance to sit down in a room with uh, black constituents and gained their trust and, and, and heard their lived experience as they would describe it to each other? Um, I have heard of experiences, but not from people specifically in Northeast Somerset. So the yeah. answer is both yes and no. I've never had a constituent come to me in my constituency surgery, but I have certainly met people in other contexts who um, have had to put up with uh, abuse. We did a radio show on it, just just sitting in a room and listening. It was post post Windrush, post one of the Windrush uh, celebrations. I have to say, it was, uh, you know, as a as a privileged white person living in Bath, yeah, it was something of an eye opener for me and um, very moving to realise that for black people living in our community, which we think of as so safe and secure, there's an almost constant sense of microaggression, plus a significant sense that people have been disadvantaged in the workplace or, or threatened or, 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 or worse. It's, I think um, Windrush is an unbelievable disgrace. Um, uh, I am very uncomfortable with the hostile environment policy because I think it fails to recognise the fundamental equality of every British citizen um, and that if you believe in that then there should not be a hostile policy because in reality the hostile policy will not be directed at people like me uh, and I think that was a mistake of policy and Windrush was a shameful consequence of it. Um, you see I, I, feel, I feel very strongly that every British citizen is as much a British citizen as any of the three of us is, of absolutely equal standing and equal worth. And it doesn't matter whether you got your passport this afternoon or you are in a long line of people who have lived in Somerset for hundreds of generations. There is a fundamental equality of British citizen and that the hostile policy, uh, the hostile environment policy undermined that and was therefore wrong. And I do wish that that all of our sort of um, fellow Britons would would wake up to to that that reality, which I think you've stated extremely well. But we seem to be in a time where people use the word woke as an insult. I mean, is it is it a well, word you'd use as an insult? Well, um, but uh, perhaps I need to complete what I'm saying. Mm. I'm also very proud to be British, yeah. and I think being British is a great thing, and I'm very proud of our country. But I think everybody who has that British passport, regardless of where they've come from, is part of this great enterprise with me. Please carry on. I was going to say, it doesn't make me apologise for my nation's history or any of that. It's just so important to understand that anyone who has a British passport is part of this really exciting enterprise that has been wonderfully successful. And as a politician, obviously looking to the future rather than the past, I want to see be more successful in future. I think that's high time for some more imperial tunes. And we're going to play uh, from the Zauberflöte, the Mozart's magic flute, the Queen of the Night's aria, Der Holler. Um, oh, well, I love it. It's, it's um, probably my most favorite piece of music. And I think it is so beautiful. <laughs>
we did toy with the idea of dropping in the version by that American millionaires who, who decided that she was a good enough opera singer to hire a band. But I think that would be unfortunate, wouldn't it? Oh, no, don't do that, because <laughs> it's so terrible if it's not perfectly sung. No, I, well, I agree. She is some way from perfect. I think it's fair to say. So yeah. our next section is about identity and culture. Are we ready to move on? Tozen, are you ready? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Yeah. Jacob, you may have heard that a statue of His Imperial Majesty in Wimbledon was vandalised last summer for political reasons. What, what do you make of that? It's just dreadful and silly. Um, and uh, so hard to see why anybody would want to do that, that um, he was, after all, His Imperial Majesty, somebody to whom this country, perhaps not in as enthusiastically as it should have done, gave refuge and who Churchill helped put back on his throne. Um, we should be proud of our connections with other countries and with how we have related to them. And it, it, it seems to me perfectly appropriate that in uh, Parliament Square there are statues of Abraham Lincoln, um, Habib Gandhi, and Nelson Mandela, as well as great figures from um, who ruled the United Kingdom. And uh, there's also um, Smarts too. So that there are a number of figures of global historic importance who we have uh, statues put up to, and we should be respectful of them as we are to statues of our own heroes. So are you sort of saying that all the statues we have in the public spaces are right to be there and are sort of immutable um, and should be free from criticism? No, I'm not. I'm not going that far because... Um, views change and some people who are thought to be heroes at one period in history are not thought to be heroes in other periods of history. Um, um, I mean, where would you put uh, Henry VIII? Not a great hero of mine, I must confess. Um, I find it difficult, though I don't think his statue should have been torn down, to defend Colston. I don't think um, his history is an attractive one. And it interests me that his statue wasn't put up until whatever it is, 150 years after he died. And it's a celebration of somebody once the immediate link with him has, had, had been forgotten. But I don't think statues should be pulled down by mobs. I think that's straightforward criminality um, and, and should not be allowed to happen. Uh, and if people do it, they should be suitably taken through the courts. Um, uh, so I think there is a, a space for an argument about statues and debate, but I don't think there's any argument for vandalising and defacing them. We are, for, for whatever reason, in a place where nearly all of our statues are of white men. And looking forward, what criteria do you think we should apply to determine what future statues we put up? Um, you want to put up statues to people who have a following and an interest in them. And sometimes that comes immediately after their death. Sometimes that comes later. But you, you uh, and, and fashions change, don't they? That some of the statues put up to people who every schoolboy would have known the name of 100 years ago and almost no schoolboy knows the name of now. Yeah. And not that this is a particular test for statues, the schoolboy test, um, but you want people who are uh, of interest and who have done important things 
um, either globally or more generally in the interest of the country or, of course, locality. Now, you may have answered this question already, but I do think our listeners would really like to hear what you say about this. Would you find, which would you find more inspiring, a statue of Edward Colston or a statue of His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I? That's an easy question. Um, it, it, not just because I'm on your radio station, but it's of His Imperial Majesty. As I said, I, I, I don't find Colston an attractive character. Given the killing of George Floyd and um, other incidents, do you think Black Lives Matter activists have a point? Um, but I, I, I think American politics is very different from UK politics. And, and I think that the um, issues that you have in the United States that we, we touched on actually in relation to Haile Selassie's speech and is saying that in the 1960s, the last vestiges uh, of, of racial discrimination being tackled by JFK, which was extremely tactful, but not necessarily extremely accurate. Uh, and, and I think we make a mistake when we view UK politics uh, in the same light as US politics. And I'm probably better able to talk about UK politics than US politics. We had well, a Black Lives Matter demo. Black in... Lives Matter um, activists and activism during the, the summer of 2020. Um, and the, in some instances, the government came down a bit hard on them. What do you as an individual and what do you as a politician think about them? Think about the oh, whole I believe, movement. I believe, in the, I believe in the right of protest if people want to protest. It's an important democratic right, um, but it should be done within the law. And that's obviously important. And the Home Secretary is recently very critical of Black Lives Matter protesters. And we had a Black Lives Matter protest in Bath, extremely peaceful, and then the one in Bristol, which was a little a little livelier. I mean, do you, do you have sympathy with her view of Black Lives Matter? Or, um, or would you, are you... I, I'm, 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 I'm a huge admirer of the Home Secretary. I think she's a very effective uh, and good Home Secretary. And there, there are certainly questions about... Um, but these are more American issues than British issues about the um, uh, not having a police force and so on. Um, uh, and so it's legitimate to question some of the underlying politics uh, of, of um, the BLM organization. I mean, you've been widely cited for being in the company of the traditional Britain group or the AFD in Germany. And I think there's a perception that you may be more comfortable in that company than you would be with Black Lives Matter activists. Is that fair? Uh, the traditional Britain meeting um, was a mistake that I would never have attended that meeting had I known uh, the views that the leaders of it had. Um, it sounded a perfectly harmless organisation. And as I'm sure you realise, politicians address a large number of organisations, but I would never have gone anywhere near uh, the traditional Britain group, had I realised how unpleasant its organisers are. His Imperial Majesty was a paradox of personas. On the one hand, he was incredibly warm with his family, children, animals, yet also seen as a rather distant figure and controversial autocrat. You are also have a very public persona, which people appear to love to hate, <laughs> Yet, <laughs> within the county, you're also known as being personable, popular, local businesses and schools like talking to you. 
and you've come onto a radio show like ours. How are we to reconcile the two personas? Well, uh, I, I don't know. Um, it's always very difficult to um, uh, discuss oneself, really, that, that the great gift to see oneself as others see one is um, one that very few people have, and I'm not going to claim that I've got. Um, but uh, I was flattered to be invited onto your um, uh, radio station, and, and, and particularly the little story I told you early on about my father having met Haile Selassie's daughters. I felt that there was a sort of connection that um, made it a, a, an interesting thing to do. Um, but I, I think politicians are always seen in more than um, one dimension, but not always in more than one dimension at a time. Uh, and inevitably, one's political opponents point to the faults rather than to the virtues of a politician. And I no doubt do the same with my political opponents, because you, you need to get a message across to voters uh, about who you are um, standing against. And you don't want them necessarily to see the person who is um, a nice to animals and a good family man. You want them to see the hard left socialist who you think will bankrupt the country. So you enjoy playing the game, in other words? Oh, I, I enjoy politics. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I think that um, uh, politics is both extremely interesting and um, uh, important, but in addition to that, uh, politics is is fun, um, and I think it should be. I think it'd be a pity if we were all too po-faced all the time. So I think the Prime Minister is so popular because uh, it's quite clear that he enjoys being politically engaged. We're going to come on to politics next, but let's now do track three, another imperial classic, which is Zadok the Priest by Handel.
May I ask a question? Please do. Yes. So you've chosen three sort of classical pieces. Do you yes, listen um, to other music outside of what may be seen in some ways as a stereotype of who some people would like to perceive you as? Well, you, you, you gave me only three choices, so that, that narrowed the field. Um, and I didn't choose anything else because I couldn't decide which one to pick. But I did have a no number in mind, and I'll tell you the three. Um, and you'll think my taste in music, having been impressed, I hope, by the first three, is so awful. Um, but there are things I play to my children. So it was um, uh, um, uh, uh, the um, uh, Run Rabbit, um, the um, Runaway Train, um, and um, Nelly the Elephant, uh, th all three of which I play regularly to my two smallest children. Um, the, the Runaway Train is a bedtime favourite. Actually, Nelly the Elephant is known as the Runaway Elephant for obvious reasons. So it's the Runaway Train or the Runaway Elephant. These are classic sounds. They would, they would break up. These are classic sounds, and I know the words that's almost good. entirely that's good. to all three of them, but I'm not going to start singing uh, and model myself on that American millionaire-ass. The, 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 the normal diet on um, Imperial Voice is heavy, heavy dub, but that's, that's perhaps <laughs> something for the children to grow into at a later stage. So, Jacob, I mean, you know, I'm public school educated. You and I are both sort of highly educated and so forth. You're also an, a successful investor. Do you think in this, this question of your public persona, do you think people are jealous of, of a perceived wealth and privilege and untouchability? Um, no, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think if you come down to what matters as a constituency MP, it's are you on the side of your constituents? And I think it's so important that you are and that when they come to see you, you use whatever abilities you've got to try and get them redress of grievance. And that's what I try and do locally. And it's not party political. I, I have no idea how the people who come and see me vote. I don't ask them. I don't want mm -hmm. to know um, that it's, it's something you do for everybody. And that is the most rewarding political work that you do. Um, uh, and more, more so than great speeches in parliament, more so than um, being in office or any of that, it is managing when somebody comes to see you with a real difficulty in his or her life that is caused by the state to get that put right. And that is what provides the job satisfaction beyond success in investment, success in business, any of that. It's one by one helping people. So would you recognize uh, and have sympathy with the words, politics should be appreciated as a lofty vocation and one of the highest forms of charity in as much as it seeks the common good. That's... Um, well, I think if I said that, people would laugh at me. I mean, I, I think you've got to remember that politics has both elements within it, that, that, um, uh, that there is a high-mindedness uh, and needs to be a high-mindedness, but that if it's purely high-mindedness, if your head is entirely in the clouds, um, then you end up stepping in a puddle. Okay. That was Pope Francis from his encyclical Fratelli Tutti. And... His Imperial well, Majesty. Popes are, popes are allowed to say things like that. I think they can. That's that, indeed. I think day-to-day -day politicians should <laughs> not yes, pretend well, to be popes. They're, they're allowed to pontificate. They have their own word for it, don't they? <laughs> but, so coming back to His Imperial Majesty, he and Empress Menen were very much guided at all times by their profound Ethiopian Orthodox faith. How does your faith guide your public work? 
Well, it, it, it underpins the main part of the conversation that we've had today, doesn't it? That, 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 that I have a very strong belief in the, as we've discussed, the fundamental equality of every individual. What I really mean is of every soul in front of God, don't I? And that is the essence of Christian teaching, isn't it? From which comes, um, do as you would be done by, love thy neighbor as thyself. It is understanding that before God, we are all valuable. And if we're all valuable to God, then we ought all to be valuable to each other. And that if that underpins political life, then that is a base for political life. And it doesn't give you any individual decision. It doesn't tell you whether VAT should be at its current rate or at a different rate. And I have to be careful what I say a week before a budget or the chance would be most put out. But it, it doesn't guide you on those sorts of day-to-day issues, but it underpins the fundamentals of why politics is worth doing. I mean, I guess there are specific areas like marriage equality or, or, or family planning where that might present tensions, but that, that you just have to reconcile those one by one, I guess, do you? Fortunately, the the issues that are clearly conscience issues are free votes, and I think that's an important part of our political system and makes for a more tolerant political system uh, than perhaps you have in the United States. At the risk of uh, your putting you in a position where you may pontificate, um, the Pope speaks of transcendent truths that need to guide politics. Who would you nominate as the world's most truthful political leaders? <laughs> um, I, I, I believe in um, the church's view that there are two swords. There is the spiritual sword and the temporal sword. Um, I'm in the business of wielding the temporal sword, but I think the spiritual sword is um, of a different and higher order but one that isn't necessarily wieldable in terms of day-to-day political decision-making. So you're saying in a way, you know, you want people allowed to get away with being less than truthful at all times? No, I think politicians ought to be truthful. Indeed, I think truth in politics is a strength rather than a weakness. Um, But I'm saying that politicians aren't, by and large, saints, um, uh, that, that they need to deal with the world as it is, whereas um, the priesthood is trying to create a perfect world. And, and, and um, that will, is something that politicians may strive for, but they will not achieve. I think an interesting example of that must be Donald Trump, who I think you said would be Britain's greatest ally after Brexit. I'm not quite sure how you'd qualify him in terms of truthfulness and whether you'd like to, to, to revise that prediction. No, I mean, my, my, my view is that it's the job of the British government to get on with whoever the American president happens to be. That's in right. the British national interest. It was Donald Trump. It's now President Biden. It is in our national interest to um, be in sympathy with our closest ally. And that's simply a matter of fundamental. Pragma- yeah, pragmatism, and, and one has to work with whoever uh, a, another democracy has chosen. Absolutely right. That's the key point that... Um, President Trump and President Biden were both selected by a very, very large democracy. We must get on with Prime Minister Modi in India, too, because likewise, he's been selected by a very large democracy in a properly democratic way. And it's not for us to second guess what other democracies have chosen. We need to get on with their leaders. 
But if we're to judge by by a criterion of truth, even if it's a pragmatic truth, do, do you feel there's a difference between uh, America's last president and our present prime minister on the one hand, and people like Angela Merkel or Jacinda Ahern in, in, in New Zealand in terms of how they muster facts and present them to, to people? I, I, I would make no comparison between the prime minister and, and Donald Trump. Um, I think the um, prime minister is an effective user of uh, accurate facts. Um, I have no, no quibbles with, with his facts. Um, and it's not for me to comment on uh, foreign leaders. It's for foreign countries to elect who they want. I, I um, don't think it's um, particularly useful for um, British politicians to um, have any view of other countries' politicians other than that we need to get on with them in the national interest, particularly if they are friendly allied countries and are democratically elected. Fair enough. We'll, we'll have to get the Foreign Secretary on the show to, to, to tackle this. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure we will. We, we've, um, we've had a lot of dealings with the Ethiopian Embassy, who are very keen to uh, improve and accelerate uh, relations with the UK, which are very good already, of course. They take a great interest in the fact that their former uh, head of state um, made a personal gift to our community. I wonder, and we've talked about Haile Selassie's significance and importance. I wonder how you see the significance of this, this actual gift that he gave to people here, that it, in response to the warm reception and the prayers of the people of Bath, he, he gifted, you know, two acres, a two acre house, a nine bedroom Italianate villa. What, uh, what does that mean, do you think, to the people of Somerset and how, how should we treat it and look after it? Well, we should cherish it. Um, it is an important historic link. And I, I think we should always try and find reasons for linking nations together. And I'm glad that the Ethiopian ambassador is, is interested in this, because I think when there are personal relationships, even ones that are in the past, it brings history closer to people and helps build connections. And, and I hope that it will help build connections within both Bath and, and across Somerset, because it, a building, a gift, is something tangible uh, and, and has a permanent quality about it. So, Jacob, can we invite you to visit Fairfield House when the lockdown is over and it's permissible? <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not in my constituency, but it's Appreciate not very that. far from it. So um, uh, uh, assuming the MP for Bath, um, Vera Hophouse, has no complaint, I would be delighted. I'm sure we can get her consent and the elders at Fairfield House would, would, would love well, to meet you. So we'll see you there. It, 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 I, it, it's a courtesy to let a, a fellow MP know you're going into their constituency. It's, it's, it's not a veto. And, and actually, Vera is a very reasonable person to um, speak to. As, as you know, because you had her on your show. Very good. Well, we'll see you there. Brilliant. But before you go, I have a very personal question to ask you, Jacob. Mm. Um, I wrote to you um, last October, October 2020, to talk about um, the civil unrest in Nigeria, because I'm dual nationality. Um, and I was hoping that you might say something to perhaps prevent some of the uh, slaughter, which, you know, eventually came to pass. But I never received anything from back from your, and I, I, I was very hurt by that. Well, I'm extremely sorry. I try to reply to every letter that I receive or email that I receive. Um, and I'm very surprised that you didn't receive a, 
a, a response. That, that, what uh, an acknowledgement? Because um, did, did you not even get a routine reply asking for your um, address in the constituency? Not, not a thing. I wrote my address there already, but, but nothing. nothing did, did you write or send an email? I sent an email, yes. Well, it can't have got through because all my emails get an automatic response saying, please send your postal address uh, so that we can be sure that you're a constituent. Brilliant. You Perhaps get... you'd like to give us that email address now on air, if you can remember it, so that... Um... Uh, yes, it's um, jacob.reesmog.mp at parliament.uk. Brilliant. Thank you very much for and, that. And, and, and I'm, I'm, to... I'm, 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 I'm very sorry. As, as it happens, I had that question raised in the House of Commons at business questions, um, uh, and... Uh, by, um, um, I think, um, a DUP member of parliament, but um, it was a very, very serious issue and the Foreign Office did take it up and I was in correspondence with the Foreign Office uh, on behalf of a, of a member of parliament who raised it. Well, thank you very much for that, um, for your response and thank you very much for coming on our show. It has been a real pleasure um, I've really enjoyed our time together. William? Yes, thank you so much. That's been really, really clear and really thorough. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to In Our City. Our guest has been my local member of parliament, the Right Honourable Jacob Rees-Mogg, MP for North East Somerset, leader of the House of Commons and Lord President of the Privy Council. Jacob, thank you so very much for joining us. I'm Tosi O'Leary. I'm William Heath, and stay tuned to Imperial Voice. Mm -hmm.